0: Who was Ezra HaSopher? So I build this class as Ezra being the second most important Jew um, in um, Judaism, in Jewish history. Ezra HaSopher or Ezra HaKohen, was a spiritual leader of Israel at the beginning of the second temple period from about 350 B.C.E. Tradition is that he died either on the 9th or the 10th of Tavet. His exact role isn't exactly clear, but it appears that he served as the leader of the Sanhedrin, Of the Supreme Council of Judaism for the first 1800 years of Judaism we had we were led by a Supreme Council a Sanhedrin that made all final decisions when it came to Judaism and the Sanhedrin also had the authority to make new rules as they felt necessary Um, and when They needed to decide what the law should be in various new instances that that arose. The Sanhedrin had the final say. It's been disbanded some 1,700 years ago. We no longer have a Sanhedrin. Some time ago, we gave a class about the Sanhedrin. So Ezra appears to have been the leader of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council of Judaism. And he led a group of scholars who made major innovations to Judaism, And uh, a lot of Judaism, as we recognize today, traces itself back to Ezra. The Talmud tells us that Ezra was so great that had the Torah not been given by Moses, it could have been given by Ezra. So we put him on par with Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, of course, is without a doubt the most important figure in Judaism. He is the one that went Took us out of Egypt, but more importantly went on Mount Sinai, got the Torah from God, and all the Torah that we have comes from Moses. It's even called Torah Moshe, the Torah of Moses. The Talmud says that he was even greater than his ancestor Ezra was a Kohen, Ezra HaKohen, and he was even greater than his ancestor Aaron. Moses' brother. If he would have been around in Moses' day, says the Talmud, he would have been the high priest. He would have been appointed as the Kohen Gadol because he was even greater than Aaron. So he made a huge impact on Judaism, but also considered the greatest of all Jews since Moses. There is an opinion, in addition to being a Kohen, And the leader of the Sanhedrin, of the Supreme Council of Judaism, the Talmud brings an opinion that Ezra was also a prophet, was also a Navi. We don't have any clear prophecy from Ezra. But the Talmud, we have the final prophet, the last prophet that we do have prophecy from, is the prophet Malachi. And the Talmud says that Malachi was Ezra. He went by the name Malachi when he said prophecy, but he was Ezra. And so Ezra was there for if he was the prophet Malachi, then he was a prophet as well. Now much of the story of Ezra is found in the book called Ezra. The book called Ezra does not only speak about Ezra. It speaks about different parts of the building of the second temple and the beginning of the Jewish community during that period in Israel, at the beginning of the second temple. Um, But a number of chapters of Ezra speak about Ezra. And it's also found, we have Midrashim and places in the Talmud that speak about Ezra as well. How long after Moses' passage did Ezra come into being? That's a very good question. Um, 900 and something years after Moses' Ezra's death is thought to be approximately, not exactly, but 1,000 years after the Exodus. So Ezra's death marks a new period in Judaism, and it's usually dated to 312 BCE, which was exactly 1,000 years after the, after the Exodus. So who was Ezra? Ezra was the son of Sariah. Saraiah was the final Kohen Gadol, the final high priest in the first temple. In the first temple, before the first temple was destroyed, Saraiah was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He was captured during the war that led to the destruction of the temple. At, by the destruction of the temple, he was captured by the Babylonians. And we're told in the book of Melachim, in the book of Kings, he was murdered, he was brought to Rivla. Rivla was in Syria, that's where Nebuchadnezzar was based while his armies were fighting with Israel. He was brought to Rivla and was murdered there in Rivla by Nebuchadnezzar's general, Nebuchadnezzar, in Rivla. Ezra himself presumably was born before his father's death, or immediately after, would have had to have been, and so it's therefore presumed that he was born just before the destruction of the first temple. And he was a very young child at the destruction of the first temple. Ezra was brought to Babylon. Yes. So you're saying Ezra was born before the destruction of the first temple. His father was the final high priest of the first temple. So he must have at least been conceived, but presumably born before the destruction of the first temple, because his father was killed then. Okay, so we know the first temple destruction was approximately five eighty BCE. Five eighty B.C.E. First temple destroyed. The first okay I'm confused about the timing. The first temple was destroyed according to According to our traditions the first um, the first temple was destroyed about four twenty b c now there's a discrepancy over there um, and we once did a class on this subject the, the, we once did a class on this subject there's a little discrepancy on the year numbers and counting the years of the Persian Empire um, there's what's called the missing 150 years but according to our Jewish tradition the the structure of the first temple was 420 or 421 to be more accurate BCE so if you take 420 70 years later is 350 BCE yes 70 years mm-hmm. 350 BCE that's or 351 that's was the well year that earlier than what we just about. Ezra was there, you said, after the Hashemunah? No, no, no. Ezra was at the beginning of the Second Temple, at the very beginning of the Second Temple. I oh, okay. told Don a moment ago that he died around 312 BCE. Remember, we're counting downwards, backwards, right? right? So he died around 312 BCE. 312 BCE, got it. Okay. Yes. That, okay, thank you. So it was in the 300s BCE when he was leader of Israel. But he would have been born before the destruction of the first temple, which would have been in 421 BC. So Ezra was, came to Babylon with the rest of the Jewish people. He was brought to Babylon. They were all brought as um, they were all brought by the Babylonians. Only a handful were allowed to remain in Israel. Most of the Jewish people were brought to Babylon. Ezra was brought with all of them to Babylon. There he grew up in Babylon, where the Jews established a community and quickly became very successful to the point that within a couple of decades there was a whole region in Babylon that was majority Jewish. And um, they even had their own leaders, um, their own Reish Geluta, their own chief of the exile, their own prince, and um, he grew up there, and he became a great scholar, a great recognized scholar, and he became a student, a disciple of the leader of Israel at the time, the spiritual leader of Israel, Baruch ben Neria Baruch ben Neriah himself was a student of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu Hanavi. Yirmiyahu Hanavi was the spiritual leader of Israel before the destruction of the first temple. He survived the destruction of the first temple. He ended up going, staying in Israel following the destruction of the first temple with a handful of Jews that stayed. He ended up staying there. When, not long after the destruction, Gedaliah, the governor was assassinated and they all went down to Egypt. Jeremiah went down to Egypt as well and ended up it appears that he died over there. However, his chief disciple, Baruch ben Nehriah, went to Babylon. He, was, um, he went to Babylon, and over there he reestablished the Sanhedrin, the supreme council of Judaism that ruled from or led Israel in Babylon. And Baruch ben Nehriah led Israel as the spiritual leader of Israel throughout the 70 years that the Jews were. Um, until the second temple had been built. Baruch ben Neiriyah led Israel. Ezra became the most prominent disciple, main disciple of Baruch ben Neiriyah, and presumably at a certain point even joined the Sanhedrin, becoming a member of the Supreme Council. Now, 52 years after the structure of the temple, and my father spoke about this in his class last week, 52 years after the structure of the first temple, Cyrus the persian empire emperor the persian mede empire had now had conquered babylon and taken over the babylonian empire and cyrus the persian emperor allowed jews to return to israel and rebuild the temple many jews traveled to israel However, the vast majority of them remained behind in Babylon or other parts of the Babylonian Empire. By now they had spread out throughout the Babylonian Empire. Some had even moved to Persia to Shushan, the capital. Some some were living in other places around the Babylonian Empire uh, or the Persian Empire. But most Jews stayed wherever they were. Tens of thousands went back to Israel. Tens of thousands went back to Israel, but most Jews stayed where they were. And in a, among the Jews that stayed where they were was Baruch ben Neriah, the leader of the Sanhedrin. And with him, most of the members of the Sanhedrin remained in Babylon. Why did they remain in Babylon? Why didn't they respond to the call to go back to Israel and rebuild the land The Talmud tells us? Because Baruch ben Neriah was very old at the time. He had already been a great scholar and the main disciple of Jeremiah by, at the destruction. This is 52 years later. He's presumably by now in his 70s or, his, or in his 80s. He's very old and very frail and unable to travel. Since he was unable to travel, his disciples didn't want to leave him and didn't want to travel either. And therefore, the bulk of the Sanhedrin, while some members seem to have gone to Israel, the bulk of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council remained, and many great scholars who were his disciples remained behind in Babylon. How many members were there on the Sanhedrin? Generally, there were 71 senior members of the Sanhedrin. Amen. Amen. So, no long after they began the rebuilding of the temple, there were, the, as my father spoke about this in detail last week, so the Samaritans, or the Kutim, um, who were a group of non-Jews that had adapted many Jewish, um, uh, many Jewish beliefs and traditions and created their own religion, um, were upset. And they... Um, they complained about the building of the temple and not long afterwards the building of the temple was stopped initially by Cyrus but then later fully stopped by his successor Achashverosh Ahasuerus. It was only 18 years later after the death of Achashverosh Ahasuerus in the second year of King Ahashtarta or Darius, Daryavash the Talmud says, that they resumed building the second temple. It took four years to build and in the sixth year um, of Darius' reign they completed the b- building of the, second temp- of the second temple. It was one year later. One year later after the second temple had been finished So, the second temple they began the building for the second time for Lewis in 351 BCE. Right, this is five years later which would be 346 BCE, Baruch died. Baruch ben Neriah died. He would have been very, very old at the time. um, Possibly older than 100 at the time. He was very old. He dies. And so Ezra now becomes the new leader of the Sanhedrin. And he decides that he is going to go to the land of Israel. But in order to, though Jews may have gone in small numbers to the land of Israel during the last 23 years since the initial aliyah to Israel, Ezra decides to go with a large group. He goes around, he first goes to the um, emperor, Darius, and he asks him for permission to go to Israel and for support. The king gave him a large amount, allowed him for permission that whoever wants to go can go to Israel. He gave him large amounts of gold and silver, he allowed others to encourage others to give to donate towards the rebuilding of the temple, and he instructed the governors in the region of Israel. There was a governor. There was a governor that was governor over the entire Trans Euphrates. It was called, in other words, a region that included all of Israel, Syria, Lebanon, um, within the Persian Empire. And he instructed that governor to give Ezra everything that he needs to give regular um, a regular amount. Um, to the temple um, in gold and silver and wood so that he should have everything that he needs, uh, that, they, that they should be supported. He also um, granted Ezra religious autonomy in Israel. They already had religious autonomy in Babylon where essentially Jews were able to manage their own affairs. He granted him that in Israel as well, Jews will be able to manage their own internal affairs within Israel And so Ezra went around Babylon, raising money and encouraging people to join the group that were going to um, Israel and so he Ezra, then leaves and gathers one thousand four hundred and ninety six people, men, in addition to women and children, so there were presumably a few thousand people. and they travel up the Euphrates River. And they stop by the Ahava River where they fast for three days and they pray to God for protection along the way because they had not asked the king for protection. Ezra said that he had told the king that he would be that God is taking care of them. So now they needed to ask God to take care of them. And so they prayed. Indeed, God, they had large amounts of money. Everyone knew they were traveling with large amounts of money. And so the king did not send any soldiers with them. And so they asked God that they not be attacked, and indeed they were not attacked on the road at all. Yes. Why did in those days people live much older than they are today? They never no had any medication or anything like that, so I don't understand why. That's why That's a very good question. We're going to do a class about how long people live. Yes. People live to 100 today. People live to 100 today. When? In those days? Sorry? Today. today. We don't know how many lived then to a hundred, but Baruch did. And Ezra did too. Some people. So anyway, they arrive in Jerusalem four months later. They were not attacked. They were not harmed. They offer sacrifices upon their arrival in Jerusalem. Ezra took the money he was given by the king, by the donors, to enhance the temple that had just been built. The people in Israel at the time were very, very poor. And the temple that they had built had not been anywhere near as extravagant as Solomon. When Solomon had built his temple, it had been a big fancy temple. They built a very simple temple, Ezra, and gradually they kept improving it and improving it and improving it, until by the end it was a big, gorgeous temple. But in the early days it was very simple. And so Ezra was able to pay to enhance, he had brought a lot of money to enhance a temple that had been built. He reestablished the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council in Jerusalem, with himself as the president of the Sanhedrin. Now, not long after Ezra arrived, he discovered, and I think my father spoke about this as well last week, he discovered that many leaders of Israel... Many of the important people in Israel had married non-Jewish women. And so he prays, turns to God, and he offers a prayer. He tears his clothing in mourning, and he prays to God and asks God for forgiveness. We have sinned. And that is why our first temple was destroyed. We were sent into exile. God had pity on us and allowed us to build a second temple and return from exile back to Israel. And now we've sinned again. Many of the leaders have um, married non-Jewish women. And so he calls for all Jews of Israel to gather together in Jerusalem in three days. He says in three days everyone from all over Israel should come to Jerusalem for the twen- the day would be the twentieth of the Hebrew month of Kislev, and he warns whoever doesn't come, we will confiscate all of their possessions if they don't come. Everyone must come to Israel, to Jerusalem. And so everyone gathered in the temple in front of the plaza, and it was raining. And in the Book of Ezra describes it, everyone was shivering, both over fear because. They knew what was going on. And because it was raining, it was cold, it was rainy, it was in the winter. Um, And Ezra made them stand in the rain. And there he called on all those who had married non-Jewish women to separate from their non-Jewish wives. And all of Israel agreed that they would separate from their non-Jewish wives. However, they said, we're standing in the rain let us set up a committee that will be responsible to oversee, that all those that had intermarried would separate. And, um, and they will take care of it, and let us go home. We're standing in the rain. What with the children? The children. So the children would have been, the children of the non-Jew, because in Judaism... The Judaism follows the mother so the children would not be halachically Jewish, right so it appears that they built it says the commentary say they built part of what took so long is they had to have they separated from them, they had to have where to put them. they had to build homes for them can 't just throw them out of the house, so they had to build homes for them, make sure that these women had where to go, um, that they would be taken care of, but they still could not remain married to Jews now. Some suggest. Sorry? Who took care of well, presumably the, the men that had married them would have to still, still be responsible. Them, although they left them. They would still. You can't leave them out on the street. No, but they left them. are still taking. didn't say they left them, they separated from them. They couldn't remain married to them. Now, some suggest that many of these women, if not all of them, had actually converted to Judaism. I knew that was your question. But, those who converted to Judaism, in order to marry, not because they genuinely accepted and agreed to join the covenant of Israel, and join and fulfill all of God's commandments, but they converted just in order to marry, their conversions were not genuine. And, Part of the role of this committee then that Ezra had set up was in order to sort out one person at a time who had genuinely converted to Judaism and then married and whose conversions had never actually changed their ways and was still pagan and had just converted in order to marry. Now, they can convert if they genuinely accept the Torah and its commandments. But if they have no interest in accepting the Torah and its commandments, they have no interest in joining, in accepting the covenant with God, you cannot convert just in order to marry. You cannot do that. Uh, that's not a conversion. A conversion has to be a true commitment to accept the Torah. There was, though, a further problem. And that is, a number of the people that had... Um, about a quarter of the people that had married non-Jews were Kohanim. A kohen is forbidden from marrying a convert. So even if their wives converted genuinely, or, or wanted to convert genuinely, they would still be forbidden from being married to a kohen. They would still need to separate. I don't think that statement is true. I heard it. Okay, just letting you know. So how I do take you issue know, with that statement. How do you know if the person is, uh, That's a very good question. We did a class on conversion to Judaism some time ago. There are, and we greatly, you know, and we have, a, we have, um, we generally, we while we don't proselytize and push people to convert we welcome converts and admire the steps that they made however one needs to convert genuinely with accepting god's commandments not just in order to get married now or now exactly how conversion works today and is really a discussion of its own. We did a class on it some time ago, but for those who want to wait after the class, we can have a brief discussion about that right after the class. Okay. But no Jew should not like converts. In fact, the Torah commands us multiple times to love converts. So that would be violation of many of the commandments of the Torah. It be a violation of, what, of the commandment of the Torah to love converts. So Ezra led the Sanhedrin, in addition to reinforcing Jewish practice and requiring those that had married outside the faith to separate from their wives, Ezra also led the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, in making many important contributions to Judaism. Now when we speak about contributions to Judaism, it's important to remember that we once did a class on how Judaism evolved. It's important to remember that Judaism evolves in two ways. One is that it needs to, existing laws need to be applied to new situations. That's something that we still do today. Cars are invented. What is the laws of using cars on Shabbat? Right? There are, you know, there's lab-grown meat is lab-grown meat, because you have to take existing law and apply it to new situations. That's something that we still do today, and rabbis and scholars have that role still today. When there was a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council, and it came to applying the law to new situations, the Sanhedrin had the final say. They had a Supreme. Now there's no one that has the final say. We could disagree, and there are many issues within Judaism where there are disagreements as to how to apply the law. Then there is making new laws, making new rules. And now we today, rabbis, don't have the authority today to make new laws and new rules, new mitzvahs. But when the Sanhedrin was around, they did have such an authority. They created new holidays like Hanukkah and Purim. And they created new laws. Ezra was leading the Sanhedrin and therefore was maybe able to make these innovative um, new parts of Judaism that we would not be able to do today. So what did Ezra do? So here's a partial list of some of the things that Ezra did. Firstly, and this is in the book of Ezra itself, he recorded much of early Jewish genealogy. The book of Chronicles, where the first couple chapters go through Jewish genealogy, was recorded by Ezra. And he made sure to track who was Jewish, who was a Kohen, who was a Levy, who was kosher to marry. There are certain people that are not able to marry um, other Jews. And so he tracked um, Judaism. He was into what we call yuchsin, or lineage, knowing people's background and knowing who was part of the Jewish people and what their status was within the Jewish people. furthermore, Ezra edited the Torah scroll. The original Torah scroll was written by Moses, dictated by God, written by Moses, and was placed either inside or next to the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. It was there, it survived for over, well over 800 years until the days of King, Yoshio, King Josiah, a couple decades before the destruction of the temple and King Josiah um, was had a prophecy that the temple would soon be destroyed. He hid the ark of the covenant under the temple, together with the original Torah of Moses. They didn't have the original Torah, but Ezra presumably had many Torahs that had been edited from the original Torah. Was still around in the days of Ezra, so he took various Torahs and he edited and made the edited and made a authorized version of the Torah this would be the authorized version. The Torah of Ezra was around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It survived the second temple. It was around during the Onic period. It was believed to have been in Egypt. So it survived for a very, very long time. We don't know what happened to it or when it disappeared. We don't, definitely don't have it anymore. But it was the authoritative version of the Torah and there's no question that all Torah scrolls that we have today are based on the Torah of Ezra. Yes? Edited or copied? There were discrepancies that crept up over the years between various Torah scrolls and he made sure to he wrote the authorized version the correct version the he didn't have the original <laughs> okay. he, had, he presumably he had either either copies of the original or second copies he wasn't he was living less than 100 years after the after the original disappeared okay. so why is there nobody today to change the laws to go 2021 <laughs> <laughs> again we can't change laws There's no no. We cannot change or adjust laws. We can apply laws to existing situations and we could bring create new laws, like making new holidays. That only the Sanhedrin could do. We don't have a Sanhedrin. It was disbanded seventeen hundred years ago. Can we recreate one is a very good question. Why didn't we recreate that? That's a very good question. It's for a discussion for later. He once did a class class on the Sanhedrin. Okay, so Ezra further perfected the vowels and punctuation of the Torah. We know the original Torah scroll doesn't have vowels and doesn't have punctuation. But Ezra also wrote separately the punctuation vowels of the Torah and finalized those as well. He also reintroduced the use of Ashurit script into regular writing. According to our tradition, Ashurit script, which is the script that we use, the modern Hebrew script that we use in Torah scrolls and use in Hebrew today, was the original script that the Torah was written in. However, In the early days of Judaism, they adopted another script called Hebrew script that has the same letters, but it's a different script, to write regular documents. They considered Ashurit to be holy, and they didn't want to write regular things in holy script. And so Ashurit was only used for writing Torah, writing scripture, and all other mundane things were written in Hebrew script. And we've found a lot of Hebrew script. And found, in fact, we've found more Hebrew script than Assyrian script. Because inscriptions were always done with, with Hebrew script. And so Ezra was afraid that Assyrian script will not be well known over time. And so he reintroduced that we start writing regular things in Assyrian script. And so from the days of Ezra, we started using Ashuritz script as the regular script with which to write in Hebrew. So all Hebrew things that were written since Ezra um, were then written in Ashurit script. He also he he also, together with the members of the Sanhedrin, chose which books are considered holy and which books are not considered holy. In addition to the five books of the Torah, they chose 19 books, which they edited, as part of our holy scripture. And some of those books, like the book of Ezra and the book of divrei yamim Chronicles, he wrote himself. Um, other books had been written much, much earlier. But he edited them and included them within the Tanakh. Tanakh is the 24 books of our Holy Scripture, which stand for Torah, the five books of the Torah, Nevi'im, eight books of prophets, and Ketuvim, 11 books of writings. So he set the Tanakh. Now, the Talmud speaks of there were certain books that they were unsure about if they should include it. The book of Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel, was somewhat controversial. If it should be included or should not be included. There were books that they left out. For example, the Talmud says there was a book at the time called the book of Ben-Sira. The book of Ben-Sira was left out. It wasn't considered holy. Ezra found some foolish things in there. It could not have been written divinely inspired since it had had a lot of good things in there. It's a book of proverbs. It has a lot of good stuff in there, but there were some foolish things in there. So he left it out. Um, the stuff that a lot of the books that Ezra left out, the Christians later included it in their Bible. They they brought it back in, but we Jews don't have it. And so a lot of those books, actually, we only have Greek or Latin versions of them. We lost the original Hebrew since they weren't written in. Um, they weren't included in Tanakh. Jews didn't retain them and hold on to them. Well, if the book wasn't divinely inspired, it doesn't belong in our holy scriptures. Psalms were in their own book. Yes, it was one of the twenty-four books of Tanakh. So the Tanakh was chosen. Um, the English word for I think is canonized, finalized by Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly. They also organized the study structure for the oral tradition. Most of Torah, we've spoken about this in previous classes, the written word of the Torah is only a cryptic document to help us remember the oral teachings that Moses had taught us. The bulk of the Torah was taught orally by Moses to our people and we retained it from generation to generation. Until the days of Ezra, the Torah, has always, the oral Torah was always taught as a commentary on the written word. In other words, they would study the written word and the various teachings of Moses were taught as Midrash, as commentary on the written word of the Torah. But the problem is the written word, the written Torah doesn't really follow any order. It follows the chronological order mostly of how the Torah was given, but it doesn't really follow any subject order. Ezra reorganized the Oro Torah by subject, or mesichtot. Originally, he organized it into 600, into 600 subjects. It was a little too much. They cut it down to 60 different subjects. But there were 60 different subjects of mesichtot that were the, that the Torah was organized into. And that way, you studied one subject at a time. Eventually, those mesichtot were compiled with the source of what later became the Mishnah, the first book of our oral tradition, which we did a, a class about, and later that became the source or the basis of the Talmud, the most important work of our oral tradition. So the structure, restructuring the Torah by topic, rather than just following the written Torah, was also believed to have been done by Ezra and, the, um, and his Sanhedrin, who were known as the Knesset Hagdol the Great Assembly. They also wrote the blessings, blessings we make before we eat, after we eat, blessings we make before we do a mitzvah, blessings within prayer, all the various blessings, Baruch Hata Hashem, were created by Ezra. They also wrote the basic prayers. Before that, there were no prayers. There were no written prayers. You prayed whenever you want, however you want. There was no particular rules. They wrote the basic prayers and started a structure that people should pray three times a day. That ideally you should get ten men together to pray with a minion. That every community should build a special building that should be designated for prayer. Where you put the Torahs in an ark in the front of the building. And you have a bima. You have a um, table that's used for prayer and a amur, a lectern, that the leader should stand on. All of this was developed by Ezra and the men of the great assembly. So they essentially invented prayer and the synagogue as we know it. We wanted a class more in detail about how prayer, was, how prayer came about. They also said, Kiddush, Havdalah, the Torah says that you have to announce at the beginning of Shabbat, when Shabbat begins, when it ends, but it was just an announcement. They composed a blessing for it and said you should do it with a cup of wine to add to the prestige and importance of the moment. So these are all things that were developed by Ezra and his son Hedron. So they, as you can see, made a very, very big impact. The synagogue, the prayers, the blessings, the Tanakh, the scripture, the structure of the... He even edited the Torah itself, the structure of our oral teachings... All of this was developed by Ezra. You could see the impact in Judaism and why he made a greater impact on Judaism than any other person other than Moses. In addition, Ezra and his son Hedron made many takanot, many rules that became known as takanot. Ezra and the Talmud um, lists Um, various takanot, various rules made by Ezra. Some of those rules include, he made a rule that scribes and teachers can open up shop wherever you want. There are certain rules of unfair competition in Jewish law. You're not allowed to compete with someone in an unfair way, try to undercut people. Um, We have laws like that today, but they're rarely enforced. Uh, businesses always try to undercut other businesses. Jewish law bans certain ways, certain forms of undercutting other businesses. However, Ezra said scribes, teachers can open up shop wherever they want. Kinat sofrim tar scribes being um, competing with each other only increases wisdom or um, scribes or scholars, you can open a school, a yeshiva, wherever you want, as many as you want. There's a yeshiva next door, no problem. Open another one. The more competition, the better. He also set Monday and Thursday and Shabbat as the days for reading the Torah. We read the Torah Monday, Thursday, Shabbat morning and Shabbat afternoon. And said that Monday and Thursday in the land of Israel will be market days so that the villagers would come from their village where they had no minion, and they would come on Monday and Thursday to hear the Torah being read, and, they'd, and come to the market to do their own, purchase, sell, and also those are the days that the courts should sit in session, so that if anyone did have a dispute, they could come on these days to the, um, to the courts. He said the annual Torah reading system, which we have today, um, where we read a Parsha every single week, there were different variations as exactly how to do it um, and which parshas to do. But, um, but he set the initial system, the Torah reading system, was set also by Ezra. He also made many other rules. One, would, one is he allowed peddlers to travel around and sell their wares wherever they want. Local merchants cannot stop the peddlers from traveling around and selling their wares. Why? Because there are certain things that are not worthwhile to stock in your stores, because you don't sell them all that often. Spices, perfumes, you don't sell that much. People don't buy it every day. And so it doesn't pay to sell in your stores. If you don't let peddlers move, travel around and bring um, things that are not commonly sold, then those things won't be available to townspeople. And so therefore he, he allowed peddlers and townspeople and, mer- and local storekeepers cannot stop them and that's the beginning of the Jewish peddler which was um, a fixture throughout much of Jewish history so according to tradition Ezra led Israel for more than 30 years until the end of the period of the Persian Empire which according to our tradition the Persian Empire ended with the conquest of Alexander the Greeks in 312 BC we don't know exactly how or when Ezra died. We do know that his grave today is found in Basra, in southern Iraq. What appears to have happened is, what appears to have happened is, that there's there's many important Jewish graves and tombs in Iraq, because we had such a strong presence there. What appears to have happened is, Ezra must have at some point at the end of his life, gone back to the Persian capital, Shushan, Um, Shushan, which is in southern Iran, to to advocate for the Jewish community in Israel. And on his way, he died in Basra in southern Iraq and was buried over there. It wasn't easy. So Ezra (coughs) left... Ezra truly left the legacy of the individual who we can say made... The, the Talmud says, if he would as we said in the beginning, if he would have been... If the, had the Torah not been given to Moses, it could have been given to Ezra. Had Ezra been living in the days of Moses, he would have been the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He left the legacy of the individual who we could say made the greatest contribution to Judaism after Moses. So... I thank you for